Good morning, church. The title of my sermon is Peculiarly Peaceful People. Peculiarly Peaceful People. I can feel your eyes rolling at my embrace of alliteration. Yes, it is a silly rhetorical device that is designed to help you remember one big idea, and that is this, that the people of God should be distinct from all other people in the world in that there is evident relational harmony because we have been united by the God who transforms his enemy into his friends. He transforms his enemy into his children. A few moments ago, the members of this church stood and committed together as we watched the child dedication that we would love one another in such a way that would commend the truth of the gospel before these little watching eyes. Throughout this letter that we've been studying, Paul has highlighted the ways that, the Christians, are, that Christians are to be distinct from the world. We walk by faith and not by sight. Jesus' followers possess an incalculable treasure in clay pots. The world values monetary success, gifted speakers, a comfortable life, But as citizens of Christ's kingdom, we embrace our weaknesses because they display his strength. God does indeed want us to be happy, but he wants us to be holy more than he wants us to be comfortable. Paul helps us remember that when things get uncomfortable in life, we have the source of all comfort in our Lord. Paul dearly loved this church that he helped to plant, and in this letter he has bared his soul to them. As he closes this letter, he exhorts them Our our passage is two verses, or three verses, excuse me. They're very short. It contains six exhortations and one theological truth. But he wants them to step toward one another in compassion, to fight for unity, to live in peace with one another because our loving and justifying God has made them a new people through Christ. There's one big pitfall I want us to keep our eyes out for before we get started. I said that this passage contains six exhortations. It would be easy in a passage full of exhortations to veer into moralism. This is where we believe that we just need to be better people in order to please God. Or that God is displeased and angry with us because we have not behaved well enough. Church, that is not the gospel. We do not need to appease God. Christ has done that. We now have the privilege to please God out of a love for him. The gospel says you can't just try harder. There is freedom in recognizing that you can't do it, but Jesus did it. He gave his life so that his church could be reconciled to himself and to one another. God causes spiritually dead hearts to come to life. Those people are instantly made alive into God's family. And their salvation has an end goal in view. And that end goal is perfect, complete Christ-likeness. So until that day, we will continue to grow in restoration, compassion, unity, peace, and loving affection, because that's who we truly are. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 
If you don't have a Bible, it's page 971 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. And if you would, stand just for a moment as we read this short passage. But let's stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Father, we ask that you would take your word now and that you would be faithful to it. Help us, change us to look more like the image of your Son, using these words here. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Six exhortations and one theological truth about us being peculiarly peaceful people. The first exhortation is in verse 11. Rejoice. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Some of your translations may say greeting or farewell. That word is a common greeting. You can almost think of it as a modern example, the way perhaps British people would use the word cheers. It both means happiness, but it also is a common greeting. I think it's appropriate, though, looking at this letter, that we examine that word in its full meaning, both as a greeting and as an exhortation for the Church of Christ to rejoice. The Bride of Christ is a rejoicing people. This is not some sort of sappy, empty, glib superficiality. To be superficially happy is to deny real pain and suffering in the world. Again, Christ's people fully embrace that there is suffering in the world, but our Christ has overcome it. He suffered for our sake so that, we, so that his joy might be completed in us. To rejoice, be glad, be delighted in. Paul modeled this uh, so well for the Corinthian church. If you will, scroll back a little ways to 2 Corinthians 6. He demonstrates, starting in verse 5, some external afflictions that he endured. Afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, labors, sleepless nights, hunger... It's one thing to rejoice in the midst of such hardships, but the struggle goes further than just those external pressures. This letter has been full of reminders that there has been real relational brokenness between he and the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians 6, look down to verse 8. There were people accusing Paul um, wrongly, saying through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown yet well-known. They're acting as if they don't even know us. They know who we are. As dying and behold, we live as punished yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Paul has a clear conscience that he has found his joy in the Lord this whole time. And Paul, in doing this, was really only imitating our faithful and joyful Savior. Jesus faced pressures externally in his 
external social circles. The religious leaders accused him falsely. He was hung on a Roman cross. But he also knows what it is for there to be relational brokenness. He was betrayed by an unholy kiss of greeting, but more on that in a little bit. And yet it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Our joyful unity makes us distinct to the watching world. Perhaps it'd be appropriate for us leaving this place today in your quiet time sometime this week, if you are struggling to find joy, to just grab a piece of paper and a pen and write out some things that you are thankful for. That is a universally accessible application. No matter what you are going through in your life, there is something that you can thank your God for. And when you've written out five things, write out five more. And then write out five more. And praise God, thank God for those things. That's an individual application, but we are here as the church. So what could this mean corporately? Indeed, this letter was written to a church. I've gone back and forth in this moment of application a lot the past few days, as right now in the life of our church, I'm over a lot of our uh, worship-leading responsibilities. And I want to be careful not to bind consciences inappropriately. So I will say this. The word of the Lord says to rejoice. I have a clear conscience that I can say, thus saith the Lord, rejoice. As far as what that means for you, when we are gathered together, you can discern with the Holy Spirit's guidance what that means for you. For some of you, that may mean you need to sing louder as an exercise of expressing your joy to the Lord. Perhaps you are content to sing quietly. And it would be an act of faith and obedience for you to say an amen in your mind to these rich truths that we are singing and sing them louder to testify to the world that what we're singing is true. If you are a brother or sister who already is there, there's more options for you. Perhaps some of you might be feeling the Spirit's leading you to even raise your hands, to clap, to shout hallelujah. I know, it's crazy. Can I get an amen? These are options available. I give you a menu of application. It's between you and the Spirit. It's between you and the Spirit. The Word says rejoice. So what what does that mean for you, to be obedient to that? I'll leave you to, to apply it yourselves. Church, we are headed toward a day when every tear will be wiped away. Every tear will be wiped away. When we are a joyful, rejoicing people that testifies of that truth, it's attractive to the world because they recognize, hey, I want to be a part of that people who are going toward that day where every tear will be wiped away. Our faith is teleological. There is an end in sight. That brings us to our next application. Aim for restoration. Verse 11, aim for restoration. This word of restoration means to restore, to put in order, to mend. Think of how Jesus 
found his disciples, when he first called them to be his disciples, they were mending their nets, right? Just as it's difficult to catch fish that need mending, with nets that need mending, so too is it difficult for fishers of men to complete their task when there's restoration that needs to happen within the body. Paul pleaded for restoration throughout this letter, and now he's exhorting them to complete the task. This has been his aim throughout this letter and indeed throughout his relationship with this church. Remember, he planted this church, he wrote 1 Corinthians, but then there was some real conflict happening. There was a visit that he had that did not go well. There's another letter that we don't have a copy of that he calls the the painful letter, the sorrowful letter. But there were were opportunities all along that way that, that this relationship could have fizzled out. No one would have blamed Paul or the Corinthians if they kind of just went their separate ways. They're like, all right, the Lord will keep his church, but you guys do it over there, I'll do it over here. The fact that we have 2 Corinthians is a testament that Paul aimed for restoration. This should be our default perspective. It's the direction we're going. It says in our church covenant that we read to one another every time we add new members to our church that we're always ready for reconciliation. It's our default posture. We step toward one another. We are running the same race. We are on the same team. When one of us stumbles, we pick each other up, even at a cost of ourselves. We look for Christ in one another, and we exhort one another to that. There is a usefulness that exists when the church is restoring itself to God and to one another. We see a people who are not just friendly, but forbearing. Anyone can be friendly. But the church is made up of forgivers who have been forgiven. When you see your running mate stumbling, when you see them experiencing hardship, you will be compelled to step toward them and help alleviate that hardship any way that you can. That brings us to our third exhortation, comfort one another. Comfort one another. That word comfort, this is the 18th time that word has been used in this letter. This has been a major theme of the letter. Think back to how this book started in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The pattern is that God comforts us, and so we comfort one another. We have been comforted by the great comforter, and having received that comfort, we become a means of his comforting grace to one another. What a privilege, what a joy. As I've thought about this, one phrase that keeps coming to mind is that comfort is compassion in action. You don't have to convince a mother to comfort her baby when it is suffering. 
It's all a mother can do to not beg that child to come to them and be comforted to them. The prophet Isaiah uses this example to argue from the lesser to the greater in describing God's compassion for his people in Isaiah 49. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. How's that for a Christological foreshadowing? Speaking of our Christ, let's think of the way that Jesus comforted people by putting his compassion to work during his earthly ministry. Matthew chapter 9 says that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14 says that when he saw the crowds, they followed him uh, from the foot, on foot from the towns. But when he went ashore, he saw the crowd had great compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 15, Jesus calls his disciples together. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Luke chapter 7 tells the story of a woman whose son had passed away, and she was already a widow. And it says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came touched the bier, the bearer stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And he gave him to his mother. Jesus put his compassion into action by comforting people through his ministry. He also did it through his teaching. Think of the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. The Samaritan, as he journeyed, came and saw the man who had been beaten, and he had compassion on him. Luke 15 is the story of the prodigal son. And after the son had been away, he returns home, repenting of his sin. And it says that uh, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. Are we looking to one another and truly seeing one another? Do we see the suffering that exists in this body? Do you know anyone who is hurting today? There are people who are hurting. So if you don't know anyone who is hurting, I would exhort you to lean into this local body. This is your church family. Get to know more people until you run across someone who is hurting and then comfort them. You are part of God's ordained means of comforting his people. Are you hurting? Are you hurting in secret? Perhaps you may need to go to your brothers and sisters and share the weight that you're carrying with them. Experience God's comfort through the brothers and sisters that God's given you. Our next exhortation is that we should agree with one another. This word agree means to think, 
to regard, to hold an opinion, to set one's mind on something, to have a certain attitude about something. It's very active. It's not just agreeing on something out of convenience or, oh, we already agree on on stuff. No, this is a decisive action. It's an exhortation. Paul is wanting them to set their minds on agreeing with one another. The Christian walk is one in which we strive to think God's thoughts after him. Do that in regards to your local body. Think of how the Lord thinks of your brothers and sisters and set your mind on those truths. Certainly, an application of this exhortation would be to put away silly disagreements. If we are disagreeing over things that are not even theological and we don't put those to death, uh, that's, that's on us. That's not the truth of the gospel. We must set our minds proactively on the unity of our church. Philippians chapter 2 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, things we've already been talking about, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul goes on to say in Philippians 2 that we have this mind. It's ours in Christ Jesus. So think those thoughts. It's tied to a commitment to the truth. The Corinthian Christians should have agreed with one another and with Paul because he was a true apostle committed to the true gospel. The super-apostles who were preaching a false gospel, they may have been more engaging as public speakers, they may have have had more exciting resumes, but they were ministers of Satan. What agreement does the body of Christ have with Satan? Before you even begin to struggle with someone in your church relationally, set your mind on the truth that they are your brother or your sister, and let's live at peace with one another. That is our next exhortation, to live at peace. This exhortation comes with the one theological statement in here, live in peace and the God of of love and peace will be with you. That statement, and the God of peace, of love and peace will be with you, uh, is not contingent. It's not saying live at peace so that the God of peace will live with you. It's saying that the God of love and peace is with you. Remember, this is not moralism. God has reconciled us to himself. Live in peace. Cultivate peace. Cultivate harmony. Let's not take for granted what a big deal it is that the holy God is with us, sinful people. Remember the story of Gideon. When the Midianites were oppressing the people of Israel in Judges 6, Judges, the book of Judges says that they were like the locusts coming in and just taking their crops. And so we first meet Gideon in chapter 6, and he's threshing the wheat in a wine press. He's hiding from the Midianites. 
And the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon says to him, My Lord, if, my, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened? Why are we experiencing the things we're experiencing if God is truly with us? The Lord turned to him and said, uh, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Sounds like 2 Corinthians, amen? And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. A little later, Gideon went down to his house, prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes uh, from an ephah of flour. He presented them to the angel of the Lord. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And now watch this. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He realizes that he has been in the presence of the holy creator God. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. A holy God plus sinful people doesn't equal peace for those people if it's not for the loving kindness and the mercy and the peace of that holy God. Church, the Lord has made peace with us. How naturally it should flow that we would be at peace with one another. Blessed are the peacemakers. Listen to what James says in James chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition ex exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Our witness is at stake, church. Jesus says in Mark 9, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? Have salt within yourselves and be at peace with one another. Alan Cole writes, Christians are to be the moral preservative of the world. They are to salt life, to purify it, to stop it becoming utterly corrupt. But how can they do this if they themselves have lost all Christian distinctiveness? Our God is a God of love and peace. 
We ought to be people of love and peace. And everything we've talked about up to this point culminates in this last exhortation. We shouldn't just do all of this stuff in theory. There should be something tangibly evident. We should show physical affection to one another. Our final exhortation is show holy affection. Verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. So excited to preach on this verse to you. Let's calm down. Go, go one word at a time. Let's start with holy, okay? Is that easier? We'll start with holy. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The whole reason this verse might make us uncomfortable is because physical touch has also been affected by the fall. There are unholy touches. Even this kiss of greeting that Paul's talking about here can be tainted by sin and turned corrupt and unholy when it is motivated by selfish, self-serving motives. Again, I would remind you to think back to the Garden of Gethsemane. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about holy displays of affection. Holy displays of affection. It tells us that there's something about physical affection between brothers and sisters in Christ that is set apart. It's for our spiritual good. Okay, let's talk about the word kiss. Obviously, this is a non-Western culture, and we're talking about kisses of greeting. And so for us, that might be a handshake, a hug. But at the end of the day, again, where can I stand on thus saith the Lord? What can I exhort us to? At the very least, I can exhort us toward physical affection with one another. Holy, appropriate physical affection. We are embodied people. Our bodies, our embodiment matters. The word became flesh. Our physical nature wasn't below the Son of God taking it on. More than that, he was raised bodily. So our salvation isn't just leading us to some point where we will transcend our physical natures. We're not just going to be disembodied spirits floating around for all eternity. We have been fearfully and wonderfully made with purpose and intention. As embodied creatures, we need physical touch. For all of the wonderful advancements of our digital technology, we are living in a time of a deficit of physical touch. You can't touch someone that you're not physically present there with. The church must be a place where physical affection is redeemed, and we see the way that it is meant to be. It's one of the most tangible ways that we can demonstrate that we are united in Christ. Listen to this quote from Sam Albury. He, he has a book on, it's really a theology of our embodiment. 
he, in one of his chapters, he talks about there's been an upswing in recent years of uh, these cuddling services. It's not inappropriate. It's not sexual. It truly is you can hire someone to come give you hugs. That should be weird. That should be weird. If you think it's weird, you're right. <laughs> Sam Albury is commenting on, on that, and he says, we increasingly find ourselves in a culture that doesn't know how to do physical contact. The slogan of one of these agencies seems to have put its finger on the issue, so to speak. We're sex-obsessed, but touch-deprived. There's much to this. In Western culture, we have collapsed sex and intimacy together to the extent that it is hard for people to conceive of intimacy that is not sexual at its core. So more and more, we associate touch with being sensual rather than being familial. Churches should provide a remedy by being places where healthy and appropriate touch is encouraged. Paul tells Timothy to treat older men as fathers and older women as mothers. Churches are meant to be families, so it is entirely appropriate that I greet a church member of an older generation in the way I would greet my own parents. All of us are to greet one another with a holy kiss, Paul says, on more than one occasion. That will not be natural, a natural form of greeting in every culture and every time, but the principle is clear. We are to greet one another in a physical way that's familial. For most of us in the West, that will at least involve a handshake or perhaps a hug. In some cases, when greeting our spiritual mothers, for example, it might mean a kiss on the cheek. But whatever it is, we must give thought to the appropriate place of our touch in our church life. There is nothing incidental about our physicality. Our bodies were given to us as gifts, and the body of Christ should bear witness to the kind, tender God that we serve. One area of application that I was deeply convicted of over the past few days was in talking about our digital age and not being present with one another. We have brothers and sisters who are providentially hindered from being in this room this morning. Them not being here isn't them indulging in digital technology. It's they are no longer able to because of their stage of life and their physical ability. I was convicted as a young pastor of this church, how well, or how, how I don't even know some of those brothers and sisters that well to where it would be natural for me to call them up and to ask if I could come visit them. And so if that's true for me, I'm pretty involved. <laughs> I wonder if some of the younger generations here might need to apply this text by getting out your church app and going through your directory and seeing who are some of these older faces that I might not know. You can talk to Pastor Doug, who's the, the teacher for the master's class. He knows that population very well. He can put you in touch with those who need a touch. Amen. Let's be a church family that loves to embrace one another in a holy, sanctifying way. Have you ever considered the Apostles' Creed? It says, I believe in God the Father, God the Son, all these great, rich doctrinal truths, the Trinity. And it goes on to say that I believe in one holy Catholic Church, not Catholic Roman Catholic, but Catholic Universal. And is it a little odd 
that that would be on the same plane. We have these, these big truths about the Trinity and Christology, the divinity of Jesus, God and man, and I believe in the church. There's a quote attributed to Gandhi where he says, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike Christ. There are many skeptics today who that resonates very deeply with. And they would say, I have no problem believing in a God. But when I consider the God of the Bible and I look at the people who claim to be his followers, I see a disconnect. If that's you here today, I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome. I hope that today you have seen where the church is headed. And I hope you would humor me a little bit to say, like, let me meet you where you are and say, you're right. We haven't always done this perfectly. You're right. But we are being made in the image of Christ. And one day we will be perfectly in his image. I pray that the Spirit would draw you to himself. And that you would see, you'd be attracted to the sweet fragrance of Christ that does exist amongst his people. Church, our loving and peacemaking God has made peace with us. Persons who were enemies of God. He has now made us a people, his people, his children, heirs with Christ, the beloved bride of Christ. We are to be marked by restoration, compassion, unity, peace, and familial affection. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. I'm reminded of when Jesus rose from the grave and Thomas said, until I touch his hands, I won't believe. And shortly after that, you showed up in the room with the apostles and you said, peace. And you invited Thomas to touch your hands and your side. And when he said, when he proclaimed his, his belief, you said, is that why you now believe? By touching my hands? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Father, we are in that line of the apostles coming down through church history. Lord, we have not seen you with our physical eyes. But we thank you that you have given us the body of Christ to see, to touch, to serve, to fellowship with, to spur one another on toward love and good deeds until we do see you face to face. It's so easy for me to pray so confidently because I know you will do it. Would you carry us on to that day? Would you make this local body, Bull Street Baptist Church, look more like Christ corporately? Would you help us by your spirit to keep 
one another on the forefront of our minds, that we would seek to comfort one another, that we would fight for unity amongst one another, that we would see each other first as our church family. Would you help us to step out of our comfort zone in rejoicing in corporate worship, to step out of our comfort zone in showing affection toward one another? Would you do this in us by the help of your Holy Spirit, not because we need to earn your approval, but because you have welcomed us in, and it's our joy to do it. Would you help us by your Holy Spirit? And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.